You're listening to Meredith Howell's Story, a daughter with a rare genetic condition on the Child Life On Call podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, Rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. It is so overwhelming that you don't know if you can take a breath because it, it, you know, just the worry and um, the unknowns can just you know, debilitate you. But then, um, you know, that it starts to fade over time, that worry and that constant um, wondering about the future and and being scared and uh, grieving and being angry that it happened to my kid. Hello, Child Life On Call listeners. I am so excited and honored to present to you the amazing woman that is Meredith Howell. She and I connected over Instagram, and I was so excited to talk with her and record our conversation for you to hear. Meredith, mom to eight-year-old Lola, and I talk about her incredible daughter who has bosch boonstra schaff optic atrophy syndrome, also referred to as BBSOAS. You will hear in our conversation that I struggle to repeat the name of this rare condition many times, but Meredith points out the importance of saying the entire name as it truly represents her daughter's condition. I want you to listen to this entire episode because Meredith has so much insight to share, so we begin with a brief introduction into her life. My name is Meredith Howell, and I am married to a gentleman named Rob. We have been together for about 11 and a half years. It'll be 12 years in August. And we have um, two kids. We have Lola, who is just turned eight in January. And we have a son um, named Sebastian, who turned five in January. And uh, we live in Indianapolis. We have two dogs and we have a cat. And we have you know, a wonderful little neighborhood that we live in and a community that we're a part of. And um, I am the regional director for a nonprofit called Visually Impaired Preschool Services, and we provide early intervention to babies and toddlers who are blind or visually impaired throughout the state of Indiana. And um, I just were, you know, happy in our little our community here. I love that. I didn't I didn't know that about um, your work experience. That's pretty incredible. Um, do you, do you mind kind of just walking us through about who we're going to be talking about today and your experience with her? Sure. So we are talking about my daughter, Lola. Uh, she is, as I mentioned, eight years old and, um, she has, uh, an extremely rare genetic 
condition called bosch boonstra schaff Optic Atrophy Syndrome that is a result of an NR2F1 gene mutation. They can also have a deletion um, to have that syndrome. My daughter has the mutation, and um, it is something that impacts her life profoundly, but um, it is also something that uh, makes Lola, um, you know, exactly who she is and um, continues to um, teach us about um, patience and acceptance and unconditional love and, you know, all of these things that uh, you will have anyways as a parent of you know, any child, but um, especially more so um, I feel as if with Lola, um, there are things that she has brought out in me that ne- weren't necessarily, you know, identified before. So, so she's eight and, uh, and she's had the diagnosis since she, since December of 2014. Okay. Gotcha. So let me do the math there. How old was she when she got the diagnosis? She was just, she, she was one month away from turning four. Do you have a nickname for the condition? What you guys refer to it as? BBSOAS. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I often will, uh, joke with the researchers because we are in direct contact with them since it is extremely rare. And I always joke, you know, why couldn't just one of you put your name on it? Um, because it is certainly a mouthful, but I'm also very grateful that they all identified it. So, um, I'm willing to, you know, have that mouthful for the rest of my life. If it means that, you know, it connected me to the community of, um, other families who have children with the same diagnosis. So, but it is, yeah, we go by BBSOAS. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. It is a mouthful, but it's true. It's very indicative of exactly what her condition is and what she's living with. So it is a mouthful and it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, would you tell us about the time leading up to finding out, um, about, about BBSSOAS? Did I do it? BBSOAS. BBSOAS. Got it. Correct. Um, yes. Yeah, so it actually started back in um, my husband and I were living in Costa Rica. My mom and my stepdad owned a bed and breakfast down there. And so we thought, well, we'll just go on a little adventure. And so we were working and living in Costa Rica right next door to my parents. And I um, had, you know, we were wanting to start a family and I became pregnant and, you know, started kind of blogging about our experience of, you know, being pregnant in a foreign country and the medical, you know, healthcare system and what that was going to look like. And then um, I had uh, my daughter on January 4th, uh, 2011. And um, she, from the moment she was born, um, she, you know, she they placed her on my chest and I had always been told about that immediate moment of mother and child looking at one another and establishing that bond of I am yours, you are mine, my voice is who you've been hearing for the last nine months. And um, and what when they placed her on my chest, she didn't make any eye contact at all. And I thought, well, I've read that, you know, all babies are born legally blind and that you know, perhaps she just, it was something that was going to develop over time. And I was exhausted. I had just, you know, birthed the baby. And so um, 
I just thought that it, it just it was something that would come along later. And so she um, at about, um, you know, she still didn't really make much eye contact with us. And I kept asking the pediatrician in Costa Rica, is this normal? And they said sometimes it just takes longer to develop. So she could have had something called um, delayed visual maturation. And so um, at about four months of age, uh, she started having these extremely weird um, kind of repetitive arm movements and they would come in clusters. Um, and I didn't quite understand what they were. People around me kept saying, Oh, it's probably just the reflex that the mortal reflex she's having, or maybe it's gas or all of these things. But the fact that they kept coming in clusters is what was really starting to concern me. Um, and it always happened as she was sleeping or when she was sleeping. Um, and so I just one night just started Googling, you know, moral reflex repeatedly and ended up finding a YouTube video of a baby doing the exact same thing that Lola was doing. And so it ended up that um, she had something called West syndrome or infantile spasms. Um, you know, we immediately took video and contacted a neurologist and she was, I mean, for being in a, what people would often think of as a third world country, it was not at all. Um, we were uh, immediately, she was admitted to the hospital and had an EEG, which was to determine if she was indeed having this rare and catastrophic form of epilepsy is what the internet told me. Um, so I was obviously, you know, devastated, but just really focused on making sure that we were taking all the steps to get her the treatment that she needed. Um, thankfully, you know, we were in Costa Rica and we um, had a neurologist actually believe us. Um, there, I've read horror stories about families going to the emergency room and you know, thinking that this is what it is, that these infantile spasms and, um, and, and them getting turned away and saying, no, oh, it's, you know, it's just gas or it's this or that. And so I was really grateful that we had someone listen to us. Um, she was put on steroids, uh, for a month. She was essentially in a quarantine where only a certain few of us could be around her, um, at home and the over time, you know, about three weeks, the seizure stopped and then she was put on a maintenance medication, uh, for seizures. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of all of it. So she started with the infantile spasms and then at seven months of age, she was diagnosed with something called cortical visual impairment, which means that her eyes take in the images, but her brain doesn't, can't process them. So the, um, it, it makes her essentially legally blind. They often say it's like looking through a kaleidoscope or Swiss cheese. Nobody can really tell us what she sees, but um, it's one of the few visual impairments that can get better with early intervention. So because the brain is plastic and it can learn to see essentially. And so um, we started her in early intervention in Costa Rica and, you know, had all of these uh, amazing therapists who are helping us. Um, and then she had, it was very strange. She had an MRI in Costa Rica and, um, they had diagnosed her with something called lysencephaly, um, which is essentially uh, where the brain is partially smooth. Um, and it can have, you know, pretty 
um, catastrophic um, uh, symptoms that are associated with it. And so we wrapped our head around that, that this is what she was going to have and perhaps, you know, accepted that we might lose her early on because their life expectancy was shorter, uh, which was really hard to uh, accept. But at the same time, we were going to love her just the same. And so after um, she was almost a year old and we just decided that for long term purposes, it would be best to move back to Indianapolis. And so we uh, had a home here that we had been renting out. And so we, we came back to Indianapolis um, in December of um, 2011. And she, we went to a neurologist here uh, at Riley Children's Hospital. And the neurologist immediately said she doesn't look like a child that would have less encephaly because of some of the gross motor skills that she had, like sitting up and um, things that typically take longer for those children. And so um, they repeated the MRI. And uh, a few weeks later, we received the news that she did not have less encephaly. Um, which was pretty fascinating and interesting and scary because if it wasn't lysencephaly, then what was it that she had? And so um, it, it just turned out that the MRI technology in Costa Rica was not quite as effective or, um, you know, uh, I don't know the word. It just it didn't it wasn't as good as what it is here in Indianapolis, apparently. And so. Uh, so then if it wasn't lysencephaly, what was it? Um, was it something worse? Was it something better? What, you know, what was going on with our little girl? And so we went through um, a couple rounds of genetic testing and that came back normal. And you would think that getting genetic testing coming back normal would be a good thing. But when you are on a hunt for answers, you, for your child, you really want to know what, what is it that's causing her to have all of these challenges in life? Was it something I did? Was it because I was a vegetarian and I didn't eat meat when I was pregnant? Was it because I was in Costa Rica and was, you know, subjected to drinking different water or, you know, all of these things in my mind of what did I do to cause my little girl to have all of these problems? And so um, we finally um, got a phone, you know, did this whole exome sequencing, which uh, looks at all of her DNA and there were enough markers that they were, you know, looking for certain types of things. And they um, ended up that she had a gene mutation called NR2F1. Um, and it was one of those moments of great relief because, yes, we had the diagnosis and we know what this is it, what it is. And um, we were, you know, we we just felt positive that this was Exact. We were searching for an answer and we found it. Um, but then I went to Google and I typed in NR2F1 mutation and quickly realized that there was no information. There was there were um, a couple of I think maybe at that time there had been one one or two studies that had been um, released. And so um, it was actually kind of scary because it was like, wow you know, this is really rare. This is something that they don't know a lot about. And what does this mean for our daughter? And does this mean her lifespan is going to be shortened or that she's going to regress or, you know, we didn't 
if there wasn't enough information out there. And so when we went in for our genetic um, counseling session for them to explain to us what NR2F1 was, um, they essentially gave me the same paperwork that I had printed off the internet myself. And so, um, it was, uh, that before, that was before they had even named it BBSOAS. And so we were kind of, um, you know, at the forefront of this, um, this journey now, this journey of being an ultra rare, uh, genetic condition and have, you know, kind of accepted that she's setting the path for what that means for her. And, um, much like something like down syndrome or, um, you know, any other syndrome that's out there, I anticipate that this is just the beginning and that, um, there will be, they, they think there will be hundreds and hundreds more cases that will be identified because of modern, medicine, like the whole exome sequencing. Wow. That's pretty incredible. And such an emotional roller coaster that you went on from one diagnosis to another and not having this one, getting a new one, finding answers, but then actually not having any research done about it. Um, so how did you, how did Lola handle kind of all those doctor's visits, um, at the beginning there? And I mean, on top of all of this roller coasters of emotions you're going through, you're also helping to raise a child who isn't able to see, and that probably comes with its own challenges. Yeah. So she, uh, Lola is a trooper. I mean, she, for all of the poking and prodding and EEGs and blood draws and all of the things that she has had to go through, she um, has really, uh, as long as someone is near her that brings her comfort, she is okay with um, she's always been okay with the things that she's had to do. Now she doesn't necessarily like the five day video EEGs, which none of no. us do because that's, <laughs> those are miserable, those are terrible. but, <laughs> um, but other than that, um, so, you know, the thing about Lola, she has intellectual disability. She doesn't fully understand, um, everything that goes on. And so, um, just using, always explaining to her what she's about to go through, even knowing that she might not fully comprehend it, but just giving her that, that warning that, okay, you're, this is what you're going to be going through now, or, you know, just reassuring her that mommy or daddy or someone's going to be with her through all of it. Um, but you know, the, I guess if there's a silver lining of, of Lola being born this way is that she doesn't know any different. And so, um, you know, while, my son Sebastian goes in and gets um, a shot. Well, he knows what that is. He knows that, you know, that that's not something he's often having to be subjected to or um, whereas Lola, um, you know, she, she grew up, you know, we're, we're among the lucky where we don't spend a lot of time in, in hospitals, but she does have, you know, lots of therapies and doctor's visits and medications and tests and things like that. But, um, she, you know, that's just part of, of her life. And so I don't, I don't know that she, I think as she gets older, she's starting to understand more, but, um, you know, I guess if there's any, uh, positive part about it is that this is just the way that she's always grown up. And it's the way that, you know, I used to feel pretty sad about what, um, my interpretation of was of how she saw the world. And then I thought, 
no, that's because I know what the world looks like through my own eyes. And I'm putting that onto my daughter who doesn't know her world looks any different from the rest of, you know, most everyone else. And so, um, and when I say legally blind, um, it's a, because it's a visual processing disorder, it, it, she can still see, um, when she was a baby, she couldn't see much of anything at all. You could have the largest toy, brightly colored noises, sound, you know, um, lights flashing, and she wouldn't look at it at all. But now, um, you know, because the brain is just this miraculous, amazing thing, um, through the power of early intervention, you know, by challenging her brain to, um, you know, essentially adapt to the deficit that's in her, you know, that visual pathway, she learned to see. And so um, she will always be legally blind. Um, you know, she will likely never be able to drive a car or um, there are things that she still struggles with greatly as far as her vision goes. But she also can, you know, be walking around and get a glimpse of a yellow M&M on the floor <laughs> or something and pick it up and know it's a yellow M&M and, and eat it. So not that I want her <laughs> eating anything off of the floor, but when you're a mom of a little girl who has struggled with her vision so much, you're like, yay, look, that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So, but she, you know, that I've learned very, uh, it was actually not very early on. I've, I have learned that I can't put my, what I've gone through in my life on Lola because she doesn't, she doesn't have the same emotions that I do. Those same, um, she doesn't see the world the same way I do, but she doesn't know any different. And so, um, rather than feeling that pity, like she's missing something in life, I just look at it as, wow, she sees the world in a completely different way and how cool and amazing for her that she, um, you know, that, well, it, it saddens me to not know what that looks like, but how cool and amazing that, you know, that that's just the way that it is for her. I blogged for a long time about um, our life of, you know, navigating the medical care, the healthcare system in Costa Rica with a child with special needs. And then, um, you know, kind of going through that journey of infantile spasms, because everything you read on the internet was just so grave. I mean, it was so sad and devastating that, I mean, it it took everything in me to continue to research because I needed answers. We were in Costa Rica, but at the same time, everything I read was just so devastating. And so I started blogging and I realized that it was, it became kind of a journal or an outlet for myself and what processing the emotions I was having as I was going through the journey. Um, but also um, kind of giving people that hope that, you know, there are challenges, there are ups and downs, and there will be days when it is, it is so overwhelming that you don't know if you can take a breath because it, it, you know, just the worry and um, the unknowns can just, you know, debilitate you, but then, um, you know, that it starts to fade over time, that worry and that constant, um, wondering about the future and, and being scared and, uh, grieving and being angry that it happened to my kid. Um, and so that blogging, you know, blogging about it and kind of sharing that journey helped me immensely. Um, and also I think helped other people realize that, 
you know, life really does go on. It's not that um, there aren't challenging days and challenging moments. And I'm thrilled to be sitting here drinking coffee away from the chaos (laughs) of having two kids on a Sunday, you know, morning. (laughs) But at the same time, um, you know, with that, um, it, it just becomes your version of, of, you know, I, I hate that word normal, but what your version of what, uh, what normal looks like and you just begin to accept it. And, um, she has brought so much hope to the families that are just getting the diagnosis of BBSOAS. Um, you know, she had, people have, have followed her journey from all around the world. We've met, met some great friends, um, and, you know, given them hope about that infantile spasms can get better. Um, you know, that CVI, you know, cortical visual impairment can improve. Um, and so it just, I, I think that having that outlet, finding a way to get yourself through the stages of, of the grief, because in, you know, not that I don't love Lola for exactly who she is, but, um, it was, you know, she was born with a lifetime of challenges and no parent, no parent wants their kid to have a lifetime of challenges and ones that are so profound that you don't know if, you know, she's out on the sidewalk. I mean, she can't be out there by herself because she might run in the road or someone might pick her up or, you know, she doesn't understand those safety boundaries. And so um, it's really uh, kind of scary to go through life like that, knowing that you have a child who will always be faced with challenges like this. Um, but then again, it, it um, you know, she, I think has been kind of a beacon of, of light and inspiration and hope. And, um, you know, I, I love her for who she is. I wish she didn't have the things that she has to go through. Um, people often, um, ask if I, um, wish that I could take the diagnosis away and it's not that I would take it away, but I would certainly, I mean, that I would, I would do everything I could to make life easier for her. Um, and I think that that's natural with most any parent, whether you have a child with cancer or you have a child with diabetes or you have a child with a mental illness, um, you know, it wouldn't change the core of who Lola is. But if I can make life just a little bit easier for her, I absolutely would because I have to um, go on with my life knowing that there's going to be a day when I won't be around anymore. And, you know, that I have this person who um, is going to need help the rest of her life. And uh, that's a really, it's really hard because I need to, I need to live forever. <laughs> because I I, it makes it a really difficult, um, you know, thing to, to accept. So you talked a little bit about kind of your blogging and journaling. And I was just curious about how your husband or other family members or close friends kind of handle everything, um, and how their journey was. My husband is the absolute most amazing person on the planet. Um, he handled it in a way that 
um, I have great admiration for. He was that, you know, much stronger going through it than I was. I was an emotional wreck. Um, you know, it was my baby. Was, um, so it was really hard to, uh, to see her go through all those things. But I think he was trying to be, um, the strong one for, for both of us. And so, um, he certainly, um, was more quiet about it and just very methodical about these are the steps we need to take and has always trusted me to, um, he knows that even though everything that all the decisions we make for Lola, but you know, I'm kind of, and I don't know if this is a, a mom thing of children with special needs. I know that dads are amazing as well, but I feel like there's a control piece that, we moms can't seem to let go of. And so he trusts that I'm going to research the doctors and I'm going to research the medications and I'm going to make sure I'm, you know, we're, if we're going to try a new therapy, it's because I had been reading all about it. And I, you know, he's a part of all of those conversations, but I think he's also accepted that, um, this is, um, something that I really can't let go of that control of because it, it just, it's so inundated in our life. Um, and so he was, you know, I, he's a very private person. So having a public blog, um, was not the easiest for him, but we mm -hmm. were also in Costa Rica for much of that. And so it was a way for his family to stay connected to what tests she was going through or what, you know, how she was feeling or how her seizures were or, you know, things like that. So I think that it, um, in that regard, it was okay, but then he would see some of my really vulnerable posts and, um, and, you know, kind of feel like, uh, you know, that's public knowledge now, but I was trying to show mm -hmm. somebody else that, um, other people were going through it as well. Um, and so then, you know, like my, my, I think as having, you know, my parents, they, um, my mom was always very, accepting and always just right by my side and what did we need and you know always just very supportive um my stepdad it it took him a little bit longer to accept the reality of the diagnosis and the challenges i think when they're babies you can't really tell that um like yeah there's developmental delays or they might not be crawling or she might not have walked until she was 3 but as they get older um, you start to really notice the difference between a neurotypical eight-year-old and an eight-year-old with like perhaps Lola's condition. And so, um, I think as, as she's gotten older, it's become more apparent to, to Steve that, um, you know, this is a lifelong thing that she will deal with. And she certainly has pretty significant challenges. Um, but also I think through all of that, uh, he is her biggest champion and vice versa. And so it's, um, I think it helped create this, not that they wouldn't have an unconditional bond anyways, but I think that he's more protective over her and he, you know, that child can, my, my poor son who is this brilliant, you know, just has this great warm energy smile can light up a room you know, he asks for an extra cookie and he usually gets a no because he <laughs> like, you know, he, he's Sebastian. He can ask for whatever right. he wants. Well, you know, when Lola started to be able to talk and, um, 
you know, if she asks for a cookie, she'll get 13 cookies. And so, you know, it's really trying to balance that, um, that just because she is, has been delayed and she's catching up with certain things like talking and being able to say what it is that she wants, um, that we don't, that are, you know, not, not so much me because I, I think I've learned to, um, understand that you give her the world and she's going to rule the world. Um, but you know, for like my parents, I think that they've started to, you know, or that they are recognizing that, um, you know, giving into Lola because she's Lola really is, it can almost be more of a disservice to her. So, because she will. The great grandparent problem. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, how are you balancing your work life um, and your home life? And um, I guess if you could give any advice to other parents who are of a of a child with special needs, what have you find works to find your balance? Um, I think time has probably been the greatest gift for me um, because you know, in the beginning, you're so consumed with everything. It's on your mind all of the time. You can't, you feel guilty if you want to go for a walk, if you want to go get a, you know, a moment of fresh air, if you want to just put your face in your computer for a minute, or, you know, just go out and do something with a friend, you feel so guilty because you feel like you're taking away from the time that could be spent researching or, or helping, you know, do, uh, interventions with Lola or doing this or doing that. And so in the beginning, it's really hard because you're just, it's such a huge part of your life and you're trying to adjust to, it's hard enough adjusting to becoming a parent, but it's really hard to adjust to becoming a parent of a child with special needs um, because there are so many unexpected curveballs being thrown your way on a daily basis. Um, and so over time, I think the you know, Lola started going to the um, Indiana School for the Blind and Visually Impaired when she was three. She started going full time. So, um, you know, for those eight hours a day, she was at school and um, I was home with my son, Sebastian, then and um, and then just realized that I I enjoy being a working mom. And so I ended up getting a job at a, a nonprofit that had served my family, had provided early intervention to my, to Lola and to our family um, because of her vision loss and um, was offered a, a part-time position. So I started up part-time and then gradually moved my way to full-time and um, was assistant director and then recently um, was promoted to regional director. And, and it is a, um, it has been an adjustment because I, uh, I, you know, I work more, more than, you know, full time because I'm, I love what I do. And I also am passionate about helping other families who are in the same situation that I found our, myself in years ago. Um, and so as far as like the work component, it's, it's wonderful because I get to go out and advocate and um, raise money and share my story and in return help other children and families who have kids that are blind or visually impaired. Um, and so I couldn't, I couldn't think of a more fulfilling job in that aspect. Um, and then, but I think that, you know, as far as like that balance, any working parent is balancing that. Uh, we just have to happen to have some extra, um, 
you know, challenges here and there, like, you know, the doctor's appointments and she goes to full time um, applied behavior analysis therapy. Um, she doesn't go to a, a school that is essentially her school for eight hours a day. And so, um, you know, adjusting to those the drop-offs and the coordinating schedules and such. But um, I've really, I think in this past, I would say probably the past two years have really started to focus on my well-being. Um, I, when we went in and had Lola di- or, um, tested for autism, the uh, psychologist said, how are you doing? And I just burst into tears. I mean, I cried for probably, you know, a good 15 minutes because I don't think someone had asked me in that way. I mean, sure, people are like, hey, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and I can always talk to like my husband or my parents about, you know, what I'm going through. But um, it was just such a, it threw me off guard of how am I doing? And then it was like, oh, I'm not doing much of anything to take care of myself. Um, you know, she asked what I was doing in my free time or, and, you know, I wasn't doing anything that, that brought me joy and not that my kids don't bring me joy, but bring something that's specific for myself to feed my soul. And so I, um, started, you know, doing like working out or I would, um, you know, just find random things to do with friends or whatever. But I really started um, this past July, I started going to hot yoga. Um, and that's been, I guess I should back up. I, I tore my ACL playing rooftop hockey. That was really like kind of a fun outlet that I was having because it was like a team sport. And it was something that I just really loved to do. Tore my ACL, ended up being on crutches and surgery and all of that fun, not fun stuff for over for a year and decided to take up yoga because, um, you know, typical workouts were, was just way too harsh on my body. And so um, never in a ma- million years thought that yoga was going to be this transforming uh, practice. Uh, I had always read about it being um, so great for people and but thought it was, you know, I wasn't very mindful. My mind is all over the place. I'm a very anxious person. Um, but it has been probably the greatest thing that I've begun to do for myself. And so I've been committed to that since July. I go, um, usually try to go about three times a week, um, to hot yoga. And that really not only helps with, you know, me feeling physically strong, but it has helped me mentally in a pretty profound way as well, has boosted my confidence, has made me realize that I can't control everything. I'm exhausted trying to control everything. And so if I can just be mindful about um, what I really do have um, control over and realize that if something goes, uh, you know, in a different way than I had anticipated, that it's not the end of the world. Um, and so but I think, you know, I was so I mean, I, I really think I probably had some post-traumatic stress um, disorder from the infantile spasms that Lola suffered as a baby. Um, you know, all, all of that just, um, I think had a pretty profound impact on, on feeling like when's the next shoe going to drop? When's the next really bad thing going to happen? Is she, you know, am I going to walk into her room and she 
uh, is going to be dead from a seizure. Uh, you know, these things that you, you never think are going to be even part of, of, you know, your life. But when you're in a special needs community and you, and you recognize that, Hey, my friend lost her baby, lost her child because of a rare complication or from sudden unexpected death and epilepsy patients, you know, those are things that are real. And, um, so just, um, kind of always being on, on edge waiting for that, the next bad thing to happen. Well, now I'm in a place that because I am, will have no shame to admit that I, I take Prozac on a daily basis. You know, I, I tried all, all of the natural methods, the, you know, eating healthy and, trying to be mindful and exercising and, you know, doing this and doing that. And you know what, that just didn't cut it for me. And I'm happily medicated. Um, I have the, you know, my Xanax when I need it as well. Um, my, I'm lucky I have a doctor who recognizes that my life is very complicated and I'm on, I am on safety alert every moment of the day when I'm awake with Lola. And so, you know, every time my phone rings is a a therapist calling to say she's, you know, possibly, you know, fallen or she's, you know, hurt herself or is she having a seizure? All of these things. Um, Or when I'm here at home and, you know, she's getting ready to walk down the stairs. I'm rushing to walk down the stairs with her so she doesn't fall. I mean, it's just I, I didn't realize the the gravity of being constantly uh, prepared for something for the, for something to possibly bad happen. And so now because being medicated and doing yoga and going out with friends a couple times a month and um, you know, having dates with my husband, all of these things have really helped recharge you know, Meredith as a woman, as, as an individual. And that I think in return makes me even better for Lola and for Sebastian. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that with us. I've heard that from a lot of parents that, um, you can kind of try all the things and then it's, it's finding a good doctor for yourself too, not just for your child. Um, somebody that you can talk to and relate to and can actually listen to you and help you through what you're going through. Absolutely. You mentioned before that you're kind of connecting with these other families who have a similar diagnosis or the same diagnosis. What do you tell a parent who just receives this information? What kind of support and advice do you give them? Um, well, the the really nice thing is that now when people, so our, our little BBSOAS group started out with just a few moms and, um, and then grew from that into we started a Facebook group and now we're starting a nonprofit called the NR2F1 Foundation. We're really trying to build a community so that next time someone gets that diagnosis, they have a place to go. They're not going to the internet like I did and finding just, um, you know, research studies and <laughs> all of these things that are spoken in medical terms, not human, you know, emotional terms. And so, um, I I'm glad that for one, they have a place to go. They have, um, you know, every time someone is introduced to our private parent only Facebook group, you know, it's a, it's a welcome. We're so glad you're here. We're going to, you know, essentially wrap our arms around you and, and support you and love you and know that you're not alone on this journey. And I think that that, 
um, being able to offer that to, to those families is, um, it, it brings me great joy. It makes me, uh, feel good about that. You know, even though we didn't have that in the beginning, I'm glad that we can offer that to somebody else. And, you know, I guess what I often tell even families that like our nonprofit serves, um, as well, you know, there's in the beginning, it's really hard. You want someone to look into the crystal ball and tell you that everything's going to be fine in the future. And, um, it's just so hard accepting the unknowns because, um, you know, it's your baby. You, you, you love your baby, but it's not what you expected. Um, there's no books out there to prepare you for, um, having a child with an ultra rare, um, genetic mutation or any kind of special need for that matter. And so, um, I, I just try to tell them that there will be a day when you'll wake up and, you know, this won't be the first thing on your mind. Um, it won't be, uh, you know, BBSOAS in our case or epilepsy or autism or developmental delays. It won't be any of those things. It, you know, for us now, I woke up this morning and thought, Oh, it's Sunday. It's my day to get up with the kids. <laughs> um, you know, Lola said she wanted French toast last night for breakfast. And so I knew I was going to make her French toast this morning. Um, you know, it, did I change the laundry over last night? No, I didn't because I'm an exhausted parent. Um, you know, things like that, that it, life goes on and it's, it's hard. It's, it's not the easiest thing to accept that your kid has, has special needs. Um, but it's also, something that you, you, your heart learns to accept, your mind learns to accept, you go on with life. And, um, the joy that Lola brings to our lives and has, and has, you know, made such an impact in our community. And, you know, now throughout the country, throughout the world, the people that follow her journey, um, you know, it, it's just, she, she is, my soulmate. She is my everything. I, I know now that, you know, eight years later, we didn't have to make eye contact that very first moment she was born to know that I'm hers and she's mine because we just, we are connected in that way. I'm sure she is, um, curious as to where I am because she, you know, I never thought I would hear, I never, I didn't know if she would ever talk. And now, um, you know, while it's Lola's version of talking, you know, I hear mom 150 times a day and it's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Um, and so, you know, I just try to tell people to, uh, accept that you will, you could grieve, you can feel angry, you can have lots of different emotions. Um, but, you know, give yourself the, don't beat yourself up for feeling those things. It's very natural. You feel guilty because you feel grief over a child that you thought you were going to have. And again, it's not that you don't love the child you have. It's just not what you were expecting. And um, I think that goes, again, for any parent who has a child with any kind of medical condition. Um, you know, it just life goes on and it becomes this beautiful, messy, chaotic, um, you know, it might look different to most, but be, becomes just so natural and routine to you. Um, you know, people say on a daily basis, I don't know how you do it. Well, you know what? I wake up and I love my kid every day. So, I mean, if that's, I don't, 
you know, what's hard about doing that? It's what any parent would do um, for their child. And so um, I'm, I just continue to try to give people hope and, and also know that um, there will be days and it will hurt and there will be days when you don't think about it at all. Um, and it's okay. You know, I always, on the days where it does hurt or, um, you know, I see Lola go have, uh, start to notice the challenges that she's having. I, I try to honor that I, or recognize, not honor, I try to recognize that I have felt sadness or, or, um, disappointment and, and, you know, perhaps what I'm doing to help her. Have I done enough? Um, but then again, I just, you know, move on, you know, the next day I'll feel better. I'm sure. So. Thank you so much, Meredith, for being so frank and so honest about having a child with special needs and the ups and downs that go along with it. As she stated in our conversation, Meredith blogged about their experiences in Costa Rica, and you can find those posts at sayolalola.com. You can also follow along with her on Instagram and Facebook at sayolalola. The foundation that Meredith mentioned that she and other parents are creating to fund research and build a community can be found at nr2f1.org. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes so that it makes it easier for other parents and listeners to find us. And make sure you're following along at Child Life on Call on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we will have a new episode next week.